0: Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the Wellness Manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. I'm here today with Lars Peterson. Lars, welcome to Emotion Well. Thank you. So if you are a webinar follower, if you are someone who's participated in EFR webinars, Lars might be a familiar voice and name because Lars has done, and I should have checked before we did the recording, but I would say at least a dozen webinars in the last two years, at least. At least. At least, and that's public facing webinars, yeah. And in addition to the public facing webinars, Lars works with EFR to facilitate a lot of workplace trainings for us. So. Tell our listeners a little bit about you, Lars, and why I've invited you to be our kind of guest expert on mental health, mental health diagnoses, and how we are gonna chat about Mental Health Awareness Month.
1: Um, so I believe you've asked me because my, my job, my full-time job is as a private practice psychotherapist. I've been doing that since 2015. Um, In 2009, I actually went back to school part time. So, this was a later in life transition. And so, right now, I see clients primarily via telehealth, but a few in person, both in Iowa and Colorado. So, if I share any um, client stories today, they'll be easily disguised since they could be either place. Yes. Um, And the four areas that I specialize in would be anxiety, trauma, relationship issues. And um, then work vocational type things. And probably the work vocational piece because I've also worked in business for a number of years, um, sales jobs, management jobs, leadership. And I've been a, a family business consultant for a number of years and then also uh, mediated some okay. pretty interesting cases. So kind of a, um, I guess the the humorous way to say it might be checkered past, but <laughs> out of different things.
0: Yeah, well, I think that, gives you a lot of great life experiences and work experiences to bring into your private practice and you know I guess I knew that you started a private practice in psychotherapy as kind of a second career but I never have really asked you what you were doing prior to that so it sounds like you were working in a variety of positions in corporate settings or what what exactly was it
1: a pr- primarily small business. One was a manufacturing business. One was technology. Uh, worked for Iowa State University for 13 years. Oh, okay. So It's always fun that. doing webinars for them. Um, so yeah, just a, a variety of variety of things. So this Excellent. is about my third or fourth <laughs> Excellent. career, not my second. And then I spent quite a bit of time though, part-time working in a restorative justice program for youth. Okay. So uh, young people who got in trouble Uh, with the law, and this was designed to hold them accountable by um, actually having meetings with the person who they harmed, and then also getting uh, the school involved, obviously the police, um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, really people who cared about that young person. So surrounding that young person with support and holding them accountable. Yeah. So I did kind of both of those things at the same time while I was going to school.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe we could have another podcast on restorative justice, because I think that's a very interesting topic to explore itself.
1: It is fascinating.
0: So, well, for our listeners, Employee and Family Resources provides Employee Assistance Program benefits, and Lars has been, uh, like I said, facilitating a lot of trainings in the workplaces of our clients. And uh, Lars, let's talk a little bit about Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, which is May, and you know, let's just assume that the people listening are here because they don't know a lot about mental health, mental health diagnoses. And can you chat a little bit about maybe some of the common or more common diagnoses that, um, you know, you're seeing or, you know, that people are reporting and also compare that to maybe some less common diagnoses?
1: Sure. Um, Anxiety would be the most common. Um, Depression definitely is up there. Nowadays, PTSD is considered an anxiety disorder, at least in the DSM-5. That's a diagnostic manual. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't don't know if that's quite the way I'd look at it, but that's very, very common and often underlies depression and anxiety and relationship problems and lots of other things, substance abuse. Yeah. Uh, Substance abuse, obviously, is also very common and and oftentimes co-occurring. It's pretty rare that I have someone... Actually, I can't remember a client who came in and said, I've really got some substance abuse issues, but you know, my mental health is great. Right. It just, just doesn't happen. So.
0: And so is OCD an anxiety disorder?
1: Yes. And that's okay. less common. It's hard. I've, okay. I've got a um, distant family member who has struggled with OCD for quite a few years. It's a, it's, it's not an easy one.
0: So we had a gal uh, who I work with at EFR. her name's Haley Peterson Handley. and she was on our podcast back in 2020. She experienced postpartum OCD, which a lot of people, you know think about, postpartum mental health conditions like postpartum depression, but hers was postpartum OCD. And you know, that made me really think about OCD differently and and how, you know, certain events in life can trigger it. Um, not just like any mental health um diagnosis. What about things like bipolar and schizophrenia?
1: Much less common, you know, more in the half percent, one percent, okay, kind of kind of range. I don't know the exact percentage, but it's it's definitely way less common. Yeah. And um and and harder to treat typically takes uh, you know a multi kind of a multimodal approach.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of, you know people throw comments out like, "Oh, he's so OCD." or you know, she seems a little bipolar. And I think comments like that just are you know, they're completely inappropriate and not helpful, but I think people often overestimate how common something like OCD or bipolar disorder are. Uh, as, you know, it relates to the spectrum of different mental health diagnoses.
1: Right. I hear actually, and this is, seems to be younger clients typically, but I hear them say, yeah, my girlfriend was bipolar. And what they mean when I ask them, what do they mean by that? They say, oh, she was like really moody, like up and down, uh-huh. up and down. And that's, that's really, as you know, not what bipolar disorder is, but that's kind of the common usage of it is someone who has a lot of volatility in their mood.
0: What uh, what is the difference between that and manic depressive?
1: So bipolar disorder is manic depressive. Okay, they're the what, same. They're what, synonymous. What their meaning is that just like all of a sudden they're happy they're, they're happy one minute then they're really mad you know like you know that and that's kind of not thing. bipolar disorder. That is not. Okay. And if that, if that is true, if they're reporting to me that <laughs> um, truthfully, then that's most likely trauma related. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of a concept called the window of tolerance, but it's pretty helpful. in it's kind of conceptualizing some of these things. Yeah, share. Please share. Okay, it'd be, be a great visual, but I'll try to describe it the best I can. So if you, if you consider like three horizontal columns, the bottom one, bottom one would be uh, shut down, disconnected, depressed. Mm-hmm. The middle one going up would be calm, alert, you know, kind of like hopefully we both are right now engaged. Yeah. The, the top Uh, would be hyper. So that's overwhelmed, anxious, angry, all of that. A person who um, has trauma has a typically a very um, narrow window of tolerance. So it's very easy for them to get triggered and either go up and get angry, really anxious, fearful, or go down and just shut down. And I have clients who, you know, do both like regularly and spend very little time in the middle. I don't know if that that makes sense. No, that, that does make sense.
0: That does make sense. What are some of the ways that people can stay more in the middle of that window of tolerance?
1: Yes. So that that's, you know, I'm glad you asked that because when it comes to things like anxiety or PTSD, highly treatable. Depression is too. It's it's sometimes takes longer and it can be tougher, but um, but uh, especially anxiety and. Anxiety is highly treatable. And um, some of the things that you know about and that you've, you've um, taught with, I, I believe that you've taught to corporate clients, mindfulness, some uh-huh. of the mindfulness practices, grounding, uh, breath. I'm really starting to use a lot more breath work in my clinical work. And the reason I really, really like breath work is we can tell ourselves, you know, um, you know it's safe, everything's okay. That's, you know, that's kind of from the top down. But if we're breathing in such a way, one of the breaths I really like is called the four, four, six, two, and it's breathe in for four, um, hold for four out for six, hold for two. And, um, but there's lots of other ones, but it, it, you know, the body is telling the brain that, Hey, it's okay. It's safe. There's right. no way you'd be breathing like this. If a tiger was chasing you or, right. if a, you know, there was really a threat and, Just one last piece about that. I just recently did a corporate webinar for EFR. And one of the things I did was just a very brief breathing exercise. We did three rounds of breathing, three. I mean, it was 45 seconds. And when I asked people, and it was about anxiety. So a lot of it wasn't even about what to do. That just had a few slides on, let's try a couple things. And we also did a grounding technique, two thirds to three quarters of the responses on what are you gonna do differently after today's webinar was practice breathing learn yeah. more about grounding it was really striking yeah.
0: yeah when i do breath work exercises during my mindfulness trainings or sometimes i incorporate it into my self-care training or my stress training i feel like and this i used to do these in person and now i do them almost in, exclusively you know via zoom but in person i would just notice a huge shift of energy in the room you know when people just take that pause and like you said it doesn't have to be a long time 45 seconds one minute uh, and just focus on the breath it really is I think for me at least focusing on my breath is the only thing that can bring me into the present moment right because it gives me a focus and it's focused on something that's happening right now inside my body Uh, when I sit in you know maybe do a guided relaxation or a meditation my mind will wander Right, you know, over the course of the five to ten minutes, I'm doing that. But if I spend a minute focusing on my breath, that's a minute where I am entirely present. And so, uh, I I love that. And I I've not done the four four six two. Did I get it right? The four four six two. Uh, the four seven eight is one that I've done a lot. Uh, the box breathing, alternate nostril breathing. But I like the four four six two. So. I'm gonna to have to try that and maybe incorporate it. Uh, what about a grounding exercise? Can you lead us through one right now, real quickly? Sure. Is it, is it what you've done in the webinars where you ask us to focus on different things?
1: Yeah, but first, if we could, I'd like to set that up so that uh, the listeners might be able to get even a little bit more out of it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I'm gonna ask everyone listening to this to just pause for a minute and think about something stressful not a 10 on a zero to 10, not a nine, not even an eight, but a six or seven, maybe something that happened to you, maybe something you're worried about, a presentation, a podcast coming up, you have to you know, do uh, whatever it no. might be. So, but think about that for just a moment, something that's been stressful at about a six or seven and really put yourself there. And now simply wherever you are, look around and find something red Find something white. Find something blue, red, white, and blue. Find something visually appealing, whatever that means. And find something with texture, again, whatever that means to you. Now, other than my tone of voice, see if you can locate two sounds. It might be a sound within a sound if there's like a blower or motor or something. And now feel your feet either on the floor, depending on, you know, what you're doing as you're listening to this, or in your shoes, feel your feet as best you can. Feel your legs, could be the bend in your legs, it could be the touch of the chair, just feel your legs. Now your stomach, and notice how when you breathe in, your stomach expands, and when you breathe out, it contracts, so that in and out, just feel that in your stomach almost like that rocking motion. Now, lower your shoulders from your ears just a bit if you can. And if you can or if you couldn't, just notice what your shoulders feel, almost like from the inside out. And now notice your cheek and kind of eyes anywhere in that area. Just notice what that feels like. Yeah, that's all. That's the. Yeah. It's called the five two five. If we were outside, it'd be the five 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 because there'd be potentially bird sounds and lots of
0: noises. And yeah,
1: but uh, I've actually used that with a couple, and it happened three or four years ago. So I don't remember exactly, but I think one of the one of the members of the couple ship was going to break up with the other one. And it, the person had a panic attack right on my couch as we were sitting. That's when it was in person.
0: Yeah.
1: And I led them through a variation of this. And they said that was the first time they were ever able to just come out of a panic attack like that. Yes. Um, so it's it's not magic. I mean, it, it takes practice, but yeah. it can be pretty powerful. As, as you know, you've done this. Yeah.
0: Speaking of panic attacks, I feel like I hear A lot more about them recently. I've I've heard a lot of people going public with panic attacks. So, can you explain? Does that fall into an anxiety disorder?
1: It does. It does, and I have personal experience with that. All right. Um. So share at your
0: comfort level, but I'd love to learn more.
1: When I was in my twenties, I had probably fifty panic attacks, maybe more. Um, Back then, I didn't go to do a therapist, which was my mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just my understanding and, you know, kind of how I, the, the, the macho attitude kind of thing, like I'm, you know, plus I didn't really know so, so much about that. It's pretty common these days, uh, as well for people not to go to therapy. I, 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 uh, very fortunately found a book by a, a woman named Claire Weeks and she had written about agoraphobia and what agoraphobia really literally means not going outside, uh-huh. but but she took it to mean fear of fear. And that's what I believe panic attacks are, fear of fear. Because okay. once you have a panic attack, in my case, I thought I was going crazy. I thought, okay, here it goes. I'm going to end up in a mental hospital the rest of my life, da-da-da-da-da. You know, and once once a person has a panic attack, it becomes much easier to have another one because then you start worrying, uh-oh, I'm starting to get a little anxious. This is going uh-huh. to be a panic attack. And, and they just kind of keep going and going and going. So um, you really need, at that point, to work with someone to gradually expose yourself to those feelings and not not avoid them or not struggle with them because that just ramps it and keeps the panic going
0: yeah from what i've read about panic attacks i i don't believe i've ever had one you know i think that's probably something that you you would know if you've had one i think you'd know yeah yeah so i'm always curious to hear about people's experiences with those so you've talked a little bit about mental health and i'm just curious your opinion you know do you believe in a spectrum of mental health where we can kind of go from a state of good mental health to a state of poor mental health um you know at any time triggered by different events i'm just curious about your philosophy around mental health and mental health diagnoses
1: that's a big question it is a big
0: question and i didn't give it to you ahead of time so i'm sorry that's okay
1: <laughs> that's okay so I, I do believe there's a continuum. And I, and I also believe depending on your learning history, if there's trauma, uh, you know just how you've you've learned to see the world based on everything that's happened to you, it can be easier to be triggered by things mm-hmm. and then you can fall further into the uh, unwell mental health part of the continuum. Um, so resilience really or, you know is, is one way to look at it. some people for various reasons are more resilient that Uh way. It's not easily triggered. Uh, Other people are easily triggered.
0: Yeah. What about in the workplace? So let's shift gears a little bit. A lot of, well, a lot of the work that EFR does is in the workplace. I mean, we definitely serve um, our communities and we serve individuals, but a big portion of what we do at EFR is provide employee assistance programs into the workplaces. And that includes benefits for the employees, but also benefits for the employers, such as trainings, mediations, crisis response. Uh, but from your experience, you know, in the workplace prior to becoming a psychotherapist, and now your experience as a psychotherapist, seeing people who have jobs, right? What are some common misconceptions that maybe exist in workplaces or across a workforce um, that maybe we could debunk here?
1: I mean, a, a big one would, it's not so much a misconception, but, but people just don't realize what's going on in a person. And so I, I, mm-hmm. kind of a misconception that they might attribute the person's behaviors, maybe they're a little bit more volatile or a little argumentative, or they're missing work, or they're doing this, or they're doing that. They might say things like they're lazy, or they don't care, or you know, things like that. Um, one of the really hard things about anxiety is avoidance is so um, alluring, so compelling, because if you feel really anxious and then you avoid whatever's making you anxious, you feel really good for a while. And it, it's yeah. very reinforcing, very reinforcing. So I've got, I'm working with a client right now who struggles with depression and, and anxiety, has a, a highly professional job in, in, a, in a work setting, and he can work from home quite a bit, and boy, he struggles with just going into any any kind of a work situation that's not at home. And he even cancels meetings at home just because of that avoidance piece. Yeah. So people might think he's lazy. He's not. He's, he's He really cares. Um, or they might think, you know, they might attribute other reasons for his behaviors.
0: I'm even thinking... With that avoidance example in interpersonal relationships, maybe you have anxiety about a conversation that you need to have with someone, whether it's a, a colleague or a partner, or you know a family member. And so, by avoiding the conversation, you do have that. I mean, I I am saying this because I can relate to it. Um, yeah, you get you, your anxiety is relieved temporarily because you avoided it. So now that doesn't you know, solve the issue at hand. I mean, you can't avoid things forever. So um, I've noticed that sometimes my anxiety, while it's temporarily relieved, it definitely is ramped up again. You know, the moment I know I have to have that conversation. Um, We hear a lot when we're trying to sell our benefits or pitch our benefits. Oh, you know, our, our, our employees don't have any of those types of issues. You know, we have a real healthy workforce. They're young. And let's talk a little bit about how mental health Uh, diagnoses don't discriminate right you can be young you can be middle-aged you can be nearing retirement and you could live with anxiety depression uh, or even something like grief you know something that's happened to you in your life it could be episodic right or it could be you know um, maybe more acute depression so talk a little bit about that like what are some of the things that you know you're you're seeing as trends coming in, especially as it relates to the pandemic now that we're two years past the starting point of that. Um, And I do feel like a lot of people are kind of coming out of the pandemic or we're we're feeling like we're coming through the other side maybe. Um, But yeah, what are some of the trends you've been seeing?
1: So if it's okay, I'm gonna actually quote some statistics because I've been working on a presentation for EFR on why this is important for businesses basically, as you know. So um, according to SAMHSA, that's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, one in five Americans manages a diagnosable condition every year. And up to four out of five will have something that could be diagnosed during their lifetime. That may be low because people don't like to say, right. they don't like to raise their hands, even if it's anonymous, say, yep, that's me. And sometimes they don't even know they have an issue. You know, I've yeah. had clients come in and say, my, my wife is usually the guy just because it is—that's what I've seen in my office. The guy comes in. My wife told me to come. I think I'm fine, and you know, find out he has PTSD or you know right. something fairly serious. Five point three percent of people, age twelve or older, uh, have an alcohol disorder.
0: What is so- that statistic?
1: 5.3% okay. during the past year, alcohol disorder. Yeah. Six uh, in 10 parents, of, and this is an October 2020 survey, so into COVID, said that their child had experienced emotional or mental health challenges in the past month. Six out of 10, wow. 60%. College students, so we're going to work up the age range and end up with executives. Up to 44% of college students have symptoms of depression and or anxiety when they were surveyed. Wow. Almost half. Wow. Um, 30% reported feeling depressed in the last year, and half reported feeling overwhelmed, not just anxious, overwhelmingly anxious in the past year, college mm-hmm. students. Now, going on up the scale, um, in organizations, seventy. this is a study in 2019, 76% of the people studied in organizations reported at least one mental health symptom in the last year. That's up from 59%. That's still Prior to COVID, really. And um, this also showed that across all levels of seniority, executives now, as of 2019, were more likely to have mental health disorder symptoms than the people who reported to them. So it used really? to be thought that it was, you know, all the, you know, the lower management, middle management, the staff, the uh-huh. work, but, and, you know, executives were somewhat immune and that was somewhat true with the statistics, but now it's no longer true. They actually have more issues.
0: Interesting. So, what so do you all think, the way
1: up from children to, you know, adults.
0: Yeah. What do you think? I'm just curious. And I want to dig a little deeper on that last statistic. What do you think could be behind that with the, the people in higher positions or, you know, higher up? Uh, in the hierarchy of an organization reporting more mental health issues?
1: Um, I think most likely this the stress has really gone up for those people in terms of trying to manage a workforce who's maybe not very stable, maybe some, you know, people are quitting and leaving the, the great resignation, yeah. you know, kind of thing, um, trying to, trying to manage this, are you know, hype, are we, I, one restaurant owner uh, that I work with, he's like, I'm so sick of the new normal. This is about a year and a half ago. I'm so sick of the new normal. If I ever hear that term again, I'm going to, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. So it's, you know, okay, people can come in. No, they can't. They can, you know, we'll work in uh-huh. the office. No, we won't, you know, just all the different balls in the air around that is, is my guess.
0: I also find that, so we have something called a culture audit at EFR that our groups can take. And we have a set of questions for leaders, and we have a set of questions for employees. And oftentimes, I see in the, just as a trend across the leader responses across a lot of different organizations, whether it's um, manufacturing, construction, education, healthcare, insurance, a lot of the leaders report not unplugging from work. After work, and kind of staying constantly connected. And we have another question: in our culture audit, um, basically, kind of assessing. You know, do you feel comfortable unplugging from work when you're outside of work hours or sick/slash taking paid time off? And I think that you know we live in this culture of constant connection, which creates constant distraction. And sometimes we feel like we have to be available. We have to be on. We don't have that switch or that ability to unplug. And I think that's so important. Like for me, I remember when I took this job at EFR, I knew that um, there was probably an expectation that I would have my work email on my phone, but I didn't want to have that. And so I remember uh, I knew I couldn't avoid the conversation. So I was pretty anxious. But I remember, you know, one of my first conversations with Ketsy, my leader, was, so, I know this is going to sound a little interesting, maybe different, but I don't want to have my work email on my phone. And I said, you know, I would have it on my tablet so I could access work email when I wasn't in the office at my computer, but I didn't want to have it on my phone because I really wanted to have good boundaries between my work life and my personal life. And she was supportive of it, but I don't know many people that say that they don't check their work email when they're not working.
1: Right. Right,
0: And so I just think those little things can make a big difference. And so if you are an executive, I'm just wondering, I'm thinking out loud here that, you know, maybe you feel obligated to stay connected. Um, and, and I understand in some organizations you do have to be available, you know, outside of your traditional work hours. But that that's just my, you know, where my brain goes with that based on some of the things that we've seen with our culture at it. Um, as far as the pandemic goes, did you see any trends with people coming into your office? Uh, anxiety, depression?
1: Uh, yes, definitely. Both of those are up. You know, I've got a, I've um, tried to become more narrow in terms of who I work with and and how I do things. And it, it doesn't matter. I'm still overfull, And I, I even post, you know, not accepting new clients on my profiles, on my website, and I'm getting calls and I'm yeah. getting, you know, so it's... Uh, yeah, it's, and, and and the statistics support that, you know, with COVID, ever since COVID, mental health um, symptoms have risen pretty significantly.
0: What about people who struggle to, after so long of being kind of out of what was once their normal, and they got used to the new normal, to quote the person that doesn't like that. What about people who kind of, now they're comfortable with this state of everything's virtual, um, you know, they don't have to connect as much. Um, did you see that people kind of struggling to reintegrate into like the life that they once had pre-pandemic?
1: That's a really good question, and it's pretty complex because it. it remind, I've I have one client who's very introverted, and he he's an artist, and he wanted to do a T-shirt that said, you know, I was social distancing before it was cool or before it was a thing, <laughs> yeah. you know. So he, you know, he's great with you know all of that. Right. Other other. Uh, and so if he had to go back into the office, that would be really hard for him. Yeah. Other people I work with, it's really hard for them not to be in the office. So, uh-huh. and they really feed off the energy and really like that. So, um, and then there's the hybrid and that's, you know, uh, it has its own own challenges. So I think it really depends on the, the personality of the person. And, and there's something you talked to, you asked about that continuum of mental health. Yeah. One way to one way to look at that is psychological flexibility.
0: Oh, I like well, how that. How
1: flexible are we able to, you know, dealing with all these different things? And and if a person's highly psychologically flexible, they're going to find a way to make all that work.
0: Uh-huh.
1: If they're not, um, you know, it's going to be hard for them depending on which end of the continuum, I'm which end of the wanting to work at home or uh-huh. in the office they are.
0: I wonder too, with people who are working virtually either 100% of the time or or part of the time. I'm just, you know, wondering is it harder to kind of keep tabs on how they're doing emotionally because there is, you know, kind of like you said before, you know, there's a lot of misperceptions. You know, you might think someone's, you know, being lazy or, you know, they're not putting all the effort forth that they should be putting forth on a team project or they're not speaking up in meetings. And, you know, we might dismiss it as a you know, just, you know, that person just, you know, they're quiet, they're lazy. Well, they could be experiencing depression or anxiety, social anxiety. They could have PTSD. I'm just wondering, and I don't expect you to have an answer, if when we're in a virtual environment, if it's harder for team members and leaders to keep a pulse on, how are how are the employees really doing? You know, how how are people really doing? Because I feel like it's easy to put up a front in a virtual environment more than it is when I'm coming into the office and showing up.
1: It's really interesting. So that's a tough one for me to question, to answer be only because I, you know, 95% of my practice is telehealth and has been for two two years and it seems to be working really well. So I wonder if part of it is how skillful the, my assumption is if I can work with someone who has severe trauma via telehealth that there must be a way for a manager, if they're skillful, to ask the right questions, to uh-huh. read body language, to read vocal tone. Yeah. So that they can still get a read on how the person's yeah. doing.
0: So what maybe are, they're just not used to it. What are some of the right questions to ask if you're concerned about a team member?
1: That seems like a simple question, but it's a it's a it's a good one and a hard one because it depends on it depends on the relationship you have with that person. Uh-huh. And how comfortable you think they are with with responding. It depends on how much concern you have. I mean, it can be. I guess maybe that's you know kind of goes up in levels uh, simply from checking in and you know how are things going and and noticing everything about their response, not just the words. It's um, if you're noticing certain things like um, absenteeism or not participation in meetings, having a frank conversation about hey, I noticed this and and you know i'm i'm wondering if we could talk about what that means or you know so
0: yeah i
1: I think it just really depends on how much concern there is and how strong the relationship is and then just kind of going up the the ladder if you will
0: yeah well thank you so one thing we're doing at efr is we're expanding our eap benefits and this is to me this is exciting news so all of our clients are going to have access to virtual trainings with lars and these trainings are going to cover important topics i'm going to read through the list of them the first is leading with your best self the second is communicating in challenging situations and the third is behavioral health what leaders need to know so the question i just asked lars you know what would some of the appropriate questions and responses be if you are concerned about someone that type of question would likely be answered in one of our trainings that we're having uh, because that would be an example of communicating in a challenging situation that would be an example of leading with your best self it could also fall into the behavioral health what leaders need to know Um, so leading with your best self Lars this is a training on uh, basically kind of leaders and managers taking care of themselves prioritizing their own well-being to help lead with their best self is that correct
1: that's, that will be definitely a lot of it. Um, whatever it really means to bring their best self to work. So it might be managing stress, finding some, you know, some tools and some ways to manage stress more effectively. It might mean managing that self-critic that many people have and that really hurts job performance. It might mean making this the workplace safer. Um, Interesting study, and I know you've seen this on a webinar that I've done before that a, a Google study where they surveyed their teams and they had over a hundred traits of teams that they surveyed teams on within Google. And the number one characteristic of a high performing, not a happy team, a high performing team was they felt emotionally safe. Yeah, so so you know any and so it's really if that leader comes in highly critical of themselves or stressed, they're not gonna be at their best. They're not gonna be responding skillfully to these because I guess one last piece about this is that the newer research shows that there's more information coming from the rest of our body to our brain than there is from our brain to the rest of our body, like more than twice as much going from our body to our brain. So what's, what's really being looked at now is that if we're in a state of fight, flight, freeze, if we're out of the window of tolerance, it actually affects how we think yeah. And so if we're stressed, we think differently, which means mm-hmm. we're going to treat people differently mm-hmm. and we're going, to re- we're going to react instead of respond. So this is you know, all about that in terms of your best self.
0: Yeah. What about communicating in challenging situations? Can you give us just a brief synopsis of why that might be a good training for a workplace?
1: I think you hit on it. Um, it's so easy to avoid difficult conversations. Yeah. And so how do you make it safe again, psychological safety. Um, how do you make it safe to have a difficult conversation with your boss, with someone who reports to you, with a colleague? And and how do you, as, as you make it safe, how are you straightforward communicating what needs to be communicated? Because it's not, it's, you can't make good decisions if there's not everything out on the table.
0: Right. I even think the term psychological safety is something that people may not be familiar with. They may not understand entirely. Um, I mean, I even feel like that's something that I don't want to say is newer, but it just doesn't seem like something that was probably talked about 30 years ago. Would Would you agree?
1: I totally agree. Okay,
0: okay. Totally. Or even maybe 10 years ago. 10 years ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Behavioral health, what leaders need to know. This is a training that just kind of gives an overview of behavioral health. Do you go into some of the common diagnoses like depression, anxiety, yes. just helping leaders? And managers understand more about what you know—the one in five, the four in five—the you know likelihood that someone has if they have a substance use disorder. There's a co-occurring mental health diagnosis as well. So just kind of a basic overview—is that correct?
1: Well, basic overview, and also then uh, what to look for in the workplace, how to tell if someone might have something, and just just starting to uh, give some guidance and how you might approach that with the person, yeah. not not a lot of in-depth because it's an hour, but
0: it's right, you know, right.
1: starting to get the person thinking about, oh, you know, I better be intentional about how I approach this. And here's kind of a general framework.
0: Yeah. Well, these are, again, one hour virtual trainings with Lars Peterson and they're through EFR. So if you're listening and you have our employee assistance program benefit, this is something that your organization can implement for their leaders and managers. Uh, and that is something that you can connect with EFR on. And I'll include information in the show notes uh, for those who are listening today. So if they're wanting to bring this to their organization, there will be a link in the show notes that they can uh, easily explore these benefits and connect with the appropriate person at EFR to schedule them. I really appreciate all of your time and expertise, Lars. This was a great conversation, and I feel like we could just talk for a really long time. I have a bunch of other random things that I wanted to share, but uh, maybe we (laughs) can bring you back for another episode. Uh, we will include again, the information about these new trainings in our show notes and otherwise, Lars, thank you very much. It was great to have you on and we look forward to continuing our partnership with you. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunlevy and produced by Emily Wonkamp.